0: Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thanks, Nelson, for reading our scripture for today. Over the past number of weeks, we've been working through our Better Together series, discussing uh, the various aspects of the importance and implications of being a spiritual family. And today, I have the honor of walking us through what to do when things go sideways in our church relationships. Now, throughout history, the church has been filled with conflict, with strife, contentious relationships. It's been filled with manipulation, with infighting, with spiritual abuse, with sexual scandals. And that was just in the first century. See, the church has always been filled with broken, messed up people. And that's who Jesus came to save. Jesus famously said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Who are the sick Jesus is talking about? Well, he's talking about you and me. None of us come into this world spiritually healthy. We all need a doctor. We all need Jesus. That's why the church is filled with brokenness. We're all in various states of becoming spiritually healthy. And as we're on that journey, we still hurt each other, we still make mistakes, and we still need forgiveness and grace and restoration from Jesus and from each other. Now, that might be a hard pill to swallow. Perhaps you've come to church and expect that everyone in church should be perfect and has everything in order, or we pretend we do. I've had people say to me, how can you let people like that into the church? whatever that is. Well, the first thought that comes to my mind when I, when I hear that statement is, well, we let you into the church. We let me into the church. If we're in the church, how can we not let anyone who wants to follow Jesus in? Now, as I said, our sermon series is called Better Together. Great title and very accurate. But notice we didn't call it easier together or more comfortable together or more convenient together, because that would be a lie. That's why today's message is called Better, Better Together Isn't Always Easier. In this series, we've been taught the importance of our spiritual family. We've invited you to participate in impacting each other in the world through intention, intentional spiritual friendship. We've been challenged to extend grace to each other. And today, I'm going to call us to live out our identity in Christ together and to pursue healthy relationships with each other. Now, perhaps you are here today and you don't identify as a follower of Jesus. Well, in that case, you get to listen in on a family conversation. And I hope that by the end of our time together, you will have a better picture of what Jesus calls us to as a spiritual family. And you will choose to follow Jesus and join the family. I will begin by briefly reminding us why being a spiritual family is so important. In Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 31, we read, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God He is my brother and sister and mother. Wow, strong words. So what was Jesus saying? Was Jesus telling us that biological family isn't important? Well, that would contradict the fifth fifth commandment, which tells us to honor our father and mother. We also know that Jesus loved and honored his mother because of his ongoing relationship uh, with her and his instructions for her care from the cross. Jesus is not telling us that family is unimportant, but he is telling us that the call to follow him, to be his disciple and to live out his kingdom priorities is a higher priority, is more important than our biological family. Now, if you find yourself reacting to Jesus' teaching, remember all the teaching in the Bible about how we are to honor our spouses, not frustrate our children, care for our families, honor our parents, and Jesus honored his family. But he did not worship his family. Now, for some people, doing the will of God involves being misunderstood or even rejected by their family, as Jesus was. And Jesus is telling us that that it is a price worth paying. We have people in our own church family who have been cut off from their families because they have put their faith in Christ. It's a real experience for some. Jesus' family was embarrassed by his behavior and was trying to stop him from following God. Jesus' response was to teach the preeminence of God and obedience to him as the ultimate family bond for all who claim the name of Christ. So, who is our spiritual family? Jesus said that whoever does the will of God is our brother, our sister, and our mother. Why are our relationships in the spiritual family so important? Because it is God's family in where we find our identity, our healing, our purpose, and our peace. Our relationships reflect to each other and to the watching world the truth and the power and the reality of Jesus, the new life in him. Remember in John chapter 20, Jesus prayed, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our relationship with each other is an expression of our identity in Christ. Now, I'm not advocating simply for good morals or living by the golden rule or being nice Canadians. That's too low a bar. The Apostle Paul is telling us that how we treat each other is a reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our relationships are signposts to the world and each other of the reality and the goodness of Jesus and his work on the cross on our behalf. We're better together because we know who we are. In Colossians chapter 3 verses 10 and 11, Paul reminds us who we are. He wrote, Put on the new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew, a Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. Paul says, this is your identity. His word to us would be, I don't care which country you have come from. If you claim the name of Jesus, your identity is in him. Jesus lives in you, and I want you to live with that reality in mind. So, how should we treat each other in light of who we are? Paul outlines how how spiritual family relationships are to function. Verse 12, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Now, Paul knows every social group has its problems, and the church is no exception. That's why Paul called the Colossians uh, called the Colossians relationships both individually and collectively to be characterized by Christian graces. He began with individual qual- qualities: compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. In other words. Do the opposite of what most things you feel you want to do or read or see on social media and the news. There's your bar. We often want to look for someone to blame for our frustrations. We want to look for someone to pin our fears on. We want to look for someone or some group to vilify for getting in the way of our hopes and dreams. Now, I want you to take special notice of who Paul's instruction is focused on. Paul focused on the individual who is to have patience rather than the one who caused the problem. The place to begin in relational restoration is with ourselves rather than with others. Now, most of us are quick to see others as the problem. I remember as a kid, and you you might remember this too, teachers, parents, Sunday school leaders, they would all say the same thing to us when we tried to blame others for, for conflict, for problems. They would say, remember, when you're pointing your finger at others, there are three fingers pointing back at you. You've probably heard that saying before. See, the road to relational restoration and good relationships is to own your stuff. Don't start with others, start with yourself. What's your part in the conflict? Have you been compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient? Now, let me take it a step further. When you apply Paul's grid to your relational conflicts, is there something you need to repent of or ask forgiveness for? What do you need to own? Don't weigh your actions in comparison to others. Weigh your actions in light of the Bible's admonition to be compassionate, kind, humble, meek, and patient. Weigh your actions in light of being a member of God's family and your actions in refl- and how your actions reflect on Jesus. Now, these five attributes are followed by two others that may be even more difficult for us. Paul tells us to bear with each other and to be forgiving. Now, bearing with each other and forgiveness are terms that call believers to a high standard of personal action when offended. Bearing with each other is the idea of putting up with others even when they fail us or act differently from what is expected. Forgiving is based on the root word for grace, which we heard about last week. It carries the idea of free forgiveness. Our text says that we are to bear with each other and forgive each other. Whatever grievances you may have against one another. Now, don't miss who Paul is speaking to. Paul focused his teaching on the offended party, not on the offending party. It may be that the offending person had little, if any, awareness of what he has done to you. Regardless, Paul tells the offended person to take the initiative in bearing and forgiving rather than waiting for the offender to apologize. When we bear with others and forgive others, our conscience is cleansed and the matter is forgotten. The burden is lifted and the offended can think and act like Christ even toward the offender. Now, I know, some of you are already thinking, Pastor, you don't understand what they did to me. Pastor, they have not owned their behavior. Pastor, they don't deserve to be forgiven. I know, I know, I know. How do I know? Because I often feel the same way. But Jesus never, forgave us, never gave us the out of giving him a really good reason not to forgive. Every offense was committed against Jesus without remorse, and Jesus forgave. He forgave you and me before we asked. The heart of Jesus is to forgive, which means it needs to be our heart as well. Harbing resentment towards others does little good, and to do so is beneath those who claim the name of Jesus. Anyone can hold grudges. The mark of Christians is that we don't. We forgive. Why should we forgive? The answer is simple. Because Jesus forgave you and he forgave me. He forgave us. He forgave us when we didn't deserve it, couldn't buy it or earn it. The beauty of the gospel is that God freely forgives us as an act of grace. The obligation of the gospel is that we do the same for others. Now, I was reflecting on this, and I was reflecting on the ways I've been hurt in my life. As I thought back over the decades, I realized I've been cheated. I've been lied to. I've been stolen from. I've been slandered. I've been taken advantage of, and I've been abused. All those things and more happened to Jesus. He still says the same thing to me. I want you to forgive others just as I have forgiven you. And then Jesus also raised the stakes of forgiveness even higher. Remember Jesus said, For if you forgive other other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Matthew chapter 6. Friends, this is serious. This is not optional. Our willingness to forgive is a direct reflection of our desire to be a follower of Jesus. One of the worst group conflict situations I've ever witnessed was my first condo strata meeting. I'd never lived in a condo before I moved here, and the the presenting issue at the strata meeting was whether hardwood flooring would be allowed in our condos instead of carpet. Now, does that sound like something worth fighting about? Well, apparently the right answer is yes. As soon as the people started airing their views, it was very clear to me that this group had a great deal of pent-up frustration, past hurts, broken relationships, and numerous personal agendas. So what's the difference between a strata meeting and a church gathering? Paul tells us in Colossians uh, chapter 3, verse 14, when he says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. As followers of Jesus, we have a common bond, not necessarily shared by condo owners. We have all been recipients of the love of Jesus. We all have the same purpose in life, to bring glory to God and walk intimately with him and each other and lead people to Jesus. When I meet a fellow Christ follower from anywhere in the world, I have an instant connection with them because I know we have the same purpose, the same mission, the same calling on our lives. That is why Paul tells us to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul also reminds us that being better together is not just a slogan or a marketing tool. It's a biblical and personal reality that God has called every Christ follower to. How do we do this? Well, Paul tells us, we're better together when we let Jesus rule our hearts. We're better together when we let Jesus rule our hearts. Colossians 3.15, Paul said, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Paul's second command called the church to harmony. How is harmony achieved? By letting the peace of Christ rule in a believer's heart. Peace is a common expression in Pauline literature. Christians often take great comfort and encouragement from this verse, calling on the peace of Christ to fill our hearts, to fill our relationships. I think we often neglect a significant word in this passage. It's that little but powerful verb, let. Let the peace of Christ. Or you could say, allow the peace of Christ. Don't stop the peace of Christ. Let is a verb. It's an action word, denoting an action that we must take, an act that we must engage in. Paul is telling us to intentionally pursue, to invite, to open the door for Christ's peace to rule, to oversee, to guide our relationships as a church. Now, the Colossian church was to do nothing without the peace of Christ as a mindset which overshadowed their actions. The peace of Christ also gave them a a sense of validation to the church's activities. When we live out peace with Christ and peace with each other, we give glory to God and we are witnesses to each other and to the world around us. This, is, this means that when decisions are made, whether in a life group, a ministry, or by the leaders of the church, we intentionally to pursue and express the peace of Christ and how we live those out. We are members of the body of Christ. We are not simply a collection of individuals who pick and choose which programs we want to participate in that the church offers. As Christ followers who call Willingdon home, We are part of the body of Christ at Willingdon. This is our spiritual family. And participation comes with responsibilities, obligations, and benefits. Being part of a local body of Christ is not a spectator sport. Being part of a local church comes with strings attached, just like being part of a biological family comes with expectations and responsibilities. Paul's reminding us that we are the body of Christ where we live out our identity as children of God in relationship with each other, serving as witnesses to the beauty and the wonder of Jesus to the world. Theologian and missiologist Leslie Newbigin said, the church is to be a sign, instrument, and foretaste of the kingdom of God. You know what the kingdom of God is like? Look at the church. When the peace of Christ rules in our hearts, we give evidence of the reality and power of God's kingdom. The result of the peace of Christ ruling in our hearts, the result of walking in forgiveness, is thankfulness. Thankfulness for God's grace. Thankfulness for forgiveness. Thankfulness for our spiritual family. Thankfulness provides a realization that all things are provided in Christ. Thankfulness for Jesus' truth in our lives and the realization that we're better together when Jesus' teaching rules our attitudes and behaviors. We're better together when Jesus' teaching rules our attitudes and behaviors. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, we live in a world of personal opinion, personal truth, personal priorities, personal philosophies, and ideologies. If Paul were writing this today, he would not be telling us to, you know, speak your own truth. He would not say to us, you do you. He's telling us the exact opposite, actually. Paul is telling the Colossians, and by extension us, to create a Christ-centered community focused on the word of Christ. Now that statement, word of Christ, is probably best understood as the word about Christ. Commentator William Hendrickson says, that the idea behind the word of Christ or Christ's teaching is the thought that Christ-focused thinking should permeate every thought, every word, every deed, everything we do, everything we are. As a community, we are to constantly recognize the reason for our existence is Jesus. We are focused on him and his purpose for us. Now, unlike my condo strata, where each owner brings their personal agenda and priorities to the annual meeting, we as members of Jesus' family come with one agenda— To bring glory to God and participate in his kingdom mission in the world. That's why we're here. How do we do it? Paul tells us. By teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. As you sing psalms uh, and hymns and spiritual songs. As you worship. Wisdom in Colossians always has a spiritual dimension. And is related ultimately to the mind of Christ. Paul encouraged them to express their corporate worship in real wisdom. Which centers in and promotes Jesus. As they grew in their understanding of spiritual truth, they were to encourage others in the context of real wisdom. So how do you grow in wisdom? Through teaching people and learning about Jesus and his truth. But we don't just teach people about Jesus, but we actually teach people how to meet Jesus, how to live in wisdom that comes from developing the mind of Christ in the leading and the revelation of the Holy Spirit. That is ultimately discipleship. It is walking together as members of the body of Christ, digging into God's word, applying it to our lives, encouraging each other to grow in faithfulness and godliness and live that out in, in the marketplace and in the world around us and in our relationships and homes. This doesn't happen in a classroom. It might start there, but it, does, it can't stay there. This requires the classroom to hit the streets, to move into our homes and into our places of work. This is what Pastor Isaac spoke of a few weeks ago. That is why we have life groups and discipleship groups and community outreach and marketplace ministry and many other ministries to participate in and to be discipled by. Living this way is an act of worship. And worship is doing everything we do for the glory of God. Whether we're singing or working or spending time with friends, dealing with conflict is an act of worship. Forgiveness is an act of worship. I think that's why Paul ends this section of chapter 3 with verse 17. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. To do everything we do in the name of the Lord Jesus provides the proper context for life. The Colossian believers were not only to come to God through Jesus, uh, to worship Jesus, but also to live their lives conscious of the authority and reputation of Jesus. The same is true for us today. When someone finds out that I'm a Christ follower, I would really prefer that they say, that makes sense, and that they not say, oh, I would have never guessed. I hope that my life reflects Jesus. What has Jesus done for you? We are to live with gratitude for everything that God has done through Jesus. Jesus has given you and me new life through his forgiveness of our sins. He has moved us from spiritual death to spiritual life. He has given us an identity in him. He has gifted us with the Holy Spirit who fills us daily as we ask. He has gifted us for service in his kingdom to to point people to him. And he has and continues to bring healing to our lives. He brings healing to our interpersonal and community relationships if we submit our lives to him and extend forgiveness to others that he has extended to us. So what's your next step? Do you need to forgive someone? Do you need to bear with someone? Do you need to repent of your self-centeredness? Do you need to invite Jesus into every area of your life? Do you need to thank Jesus for all he has done for you and is doing for you today? Jesus is here to meet with you today. Do not push him away. Don't push his people away. We are a spiritual family and Jesus calls us to live as one. Let's pray. Father, I know your spirit is present and I pray that whether we are uh, wherever we are watching this, uh, online, at home, in the car, on our phones, uh, wherever it might be, I know your spirit is present and I pray right now your Holy Spirit would come into our lives especially those who've been hurt by others in the church or those who are struggling to forgive others or those who say, no, I don't trust you, Jesus. I do not trust you. That you would pry open their hearts with your love. And right now, Father, that you would come and you would pour out your spirit and we'd be able to take those things, those hurts that we're hanging on to because we want to protect ourselves and we would open up our hands and we would give them to you. And we would say, Father, I trust you. I trust you. Who do you want me to forgive? Put the name in my mind right now. And I commit to doing what you ask me to to step out and forgive, to step out and bear with one another, to look at my own soul and my own life before I start pointing my finger at others. And Father, I pray that we would increasingly become a, a community that is truly a spiritual family under your leadership that gives voice and expression and, and acts out the kingdom of God so that we would be a post, post pointing people to you. And Father, for anyone who's listening who doesn't know you, I know your invitation is for them to open their hearts to you today. And you can do that by simply praying with me. Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sin. Fill me with your spirit. I commit to following you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We have some reflection questions for you, but if you've prayed that prayer and you want someone to walk with you, make sure uh, to press on the connect button on your website.